gospel ministry in this church. Uh, Lord, we, these moments as a church are, are always bittersweet. Even, well, this isn't the moment, but anticipating that moment when they leave is, is bittersweet for us. And so I pray for Tom and Lisa that through this transition, you would be with them, your hand would be on them, the administrative details needed uh, to, to, to happen, to make this take place. I pray that it, they would not be stressful or a strain. I, I pray that there would be many moments of private joy as they look back on years and uh, spent with our church and years spent with the men and women of this, this place. Uh, I pray that, that, that you would be in this, Lord. We pray for Sovereign Grace Church of Tucson, who's going to be receiving Tom as a pastor. Um, we pray that, that there would be a receptivity and an excitement there, uh, that as Tom uh, moves toward full-time ministry and, and, and is going to be, in many cases, the, pe- the person that, that, that folks are meeting with when they have a pastoral care issue or saying, hey, can I talk about my marriage? He's going to be having many of those conversations, I just pray you'd prepare that church for, um, for him, for his ministry. Go before him. And I pray for our church, that, that we would always be, Father, a church that holds everyone here with an open hand, that every leader that we have, even the most beloved leaders, Lord, we, we, we hold with an open hand and say, Lord, uh, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last and allow us to send and release folks to where you're calling them. We want to be part of that. We want to be a, a church marked by a joyful uh, desire to send for the sake of Christ. And we pray that that would continue to mark us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can grab one of those at the back table. Now, I will uh, give you a warning before I get into the message, and the warning is this. Uh, I, we had a marriage retreat this week, and I got uh, my outline together, my rough outline together for uh, the text and the message today before I left, and I thought I will work on it in the few moments I have uh, in between things on the, you know, on, on the retreat, and I, I, got, I got my laptop out, and I said, great, I just need the power cord, and the power cord was not in the suitcase. So I thought, no problem, no problem. I trust the Lord with this. Power cord is at home. Uh, I will get home in time to kind of put my kids to bed, and last night, you know, I was planning last night, I'll, I'll type uh, the notebook notes I have. I hand wrote a bunch of notes. I'll, I'll, I'll write some handwritten notes, and then I'll transfer them, I'll type them out, and then uh, our plane was... Actually, I don't know what happened to the plane. All they told us was we were on a plane, and the, the pilot used the term, we have a small, a relatively small leak coming from our engine. And he said, well, we don't know. It might not be that bad. And every passenger is like, yeah, I'm not flying on this plane. So they got us off the plane, got us to another plane, sent us all the way up to Vegas. We came back, got in, probably at our house at midnight. Did not do that. So... Uh, this, this is what I usually preach from. These are my notes. This is what, this is what I want you to get. These notes feel more unstable and less trustworthy than they ever have. But this is just as trustworthy and stable as it has ever been. Amen. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read actually at length today. And I want you to take particular note of how the section we read begins 
and ends and what we find in the middle. Mark is a master storyteller through the inspiration of the Spirit. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 14, verse 50. This is God's word. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and all the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the chief priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, that This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Father, we pray for the blessing of your people through the preaching of your word. Amen. You may take a seat. Well, one of the stories that my dad told us over and over, I think probably every dad, is this true that every dad has some stories that they just tell over and over? And that, uh, that when the kids let the dad know, Dad, we have heard this one, they are undissuaded until they get to the end. One of those stories I grew up with was my dad telling the epic tale of his near-death experience, I think at Elephant Butte, if my memory is serving me. The story goes like this, that he, my dad and some friends in, I think, high school were were out camping at Elephant Butte. They had a tent, and as uh, they're in the tent and they're all asleep, they, they wake up to water rushing into the tent. In fact, actually, I think my dad 
described his hand was hanging off, you know, some, the little cot thing in, and felt water. And he woke up with water on his hand and they freak out and they begin to realize it's been raining. It's been raining upstream. There's water pouring in to Elfin Butte. The, it, to Elfin Butte the, the, the area is quickly rising and flooding and they're looking around for some way to escape. But for whatever reason, several avenues that they normally use were getting washed out or flooded. They're washing their, their gear gets swept away, their tent gets swept away. So what they ended up doing is finding a rocky area and essentially climbing and climbing and climbing up this rocky kind of this rocky area and basically clinging all night until the rain stopped to these rocks for dear life. Great story. Such a good story. I don't know if it's true, but that's what he told us. So in our text, that's the feel of what is happening. Very quickly, Jesus is betrayed, he's handed over, and all of a sudden this, this flood of opposition is, is sweeping everything away. All of Jesus' ministry, it feels like, is being swept away. All the good that he's done is being swept away. And you see immediately the disciples are being swept away. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. And you think, okay, surely not everyone. Well, yes, two people did not. The first we, we, will, we will see is, is probably Mark, the guy that's running after him with a linen cloth. And yet, when he faces opposition and they seize him, he's so desperate to escape, he leaves his clothes behind and runs away naked. That's the first bookend of the text. The second bookend of the text is the Apostle Peter. Now, that per- the first bookend is Mark, the writer of this gospel. He only appears once in the gospel, and it is right there. And the one providing the content of the gospel, uh, of the gospel of Mark, is Peter. Peter, so the writer and the guy providing the stories for the gospel. Peter, the apostle, the brave one, the one who just said, even if I have to deny, uh, die with you, I will never deny you. That Peter ends up denying him, not once, not twice, but three times. It feels like the, the, the flood of opposition is sweeping everything away. And Kent Hughes comments this about the shape of the text. Here, Mark's gospel is especially brilliant as he contrasts the failure of one man, Peter, with the steadfastness of the Son of Man, Christ. In order to teach the early church what was necessary to succeed in an inhospitable world, the artistry is especially memorable because the contrast is between two rocks. Christ, the rock, the spiritual rock that accompanied Israel in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10.4, and is now the foundation of the church, 1 Corinthians 3.11. That rock remains unmoved. The other rock is Peter. Petros, meaning rock, so named by Christ. And for the moment, he is seen crumbling under the pressures brought on by being identified as one of Jesus' followers. This provides an instructive contrast, a contrast that is relevant for anyone who is swimming against the tide of culture or who wishes to do so. You see the shape of the text. It it begins with people being swept away. It ends with probably the foremost disciple being swept away. And in the middle, in the very center, Mark records Jesus' utter faithfulness. The, The shape of the text is faithless, faithful, faithless. That's the shape. 
So the main idea, if I could sum up the main idea, it would be what we just sang. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's this text. Now, there's a warning and then an encouragement of the text today. So the first part is the warning. The warning is all else is sinking sand. Now, we're going to see three different kinds of sinking sand that we can often depend on. We can often stand on. We can often think are stable, uh, but are not. They will be swept away. The first is cultural consensus. Cultural consensus is sinking sand. Verse 54 says this. It says that, that all... Essentially, oh, I'm sorry, not verse 54. Now, verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all, there it is, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So that, that word all is important, instructive. It means that, that the, the 70, the, the, the Sanhedrin were gathered, and these were chief priests and former chief priests. They were the elite. They were the religious sort of judges. They were the, the cultural shapers of this people. All of them are there. Imagine being on trial. I mean, our judicial system can be intimidating, where you, you're on the witness stand, and there's a judge next to you, and then there's 12 people over here in the jury box, right? That can feel intimidating. That's not the way this was. This would be Jesus in the center, surrounded in semicircles by 70 chief priests, scribes, leaders, all arrayed against him. And, and, and the text says that all of them were opposed to him. It wasn't a debate. They were all against him. Why was Jesus then so hated by these people? Uh, You might think, well, it's because they didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand what he was trying to do. No, they hated him because they understood who he was and what he claimed to be. The two questions that the the chief priest asked here, are you the Christ and are you the son of the blessed? Those are two separate uh, asks. The first one is, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one prophesied that the king of the line of David will come and bring freedom again? And second, are you the son of the blessed? Now that term blessed is is always used in the New Testament to refer to uh, God. So he's asking, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Is that what you're claiming? And Jesus' simple answer is, and actually beautifully uh, Old Testament echoing, his answer is, I am. They hated him because they understood exactly what he was claiming. So the culture, their, their political power, their cultural power, their religious power was all arrayed against Jesus. And we have to get this. We have to get this if we are Christians. We cannot assume that the people around us, the culture around us, even the nation around us will be warm toward those who rightly claim the name of Christ. We cannot I was, I was reading recently this article about, I don't know how I even got to this article, but an article in the Daily Beast, which is a you know, secular publication, about the fall of another megachurch pastor. And I thought, did I, did I know this guy? So I was trying to scan through it, and it was just awful. I mean, this pastor did some terrible, terrible things. And, and, and it was just like a list of all the terrible things the pastor was doing. And then I ran across this paragraph. Okay, okay listen. This is the paragraph. It, 
included in the list of the terrible, manipulative, abusive things the pastor did. Here, here's what was included. The pastor's, quote, sermons lean heavily on recruitment. Many of them feature stories of him haranguing strangers, a sad young waitress, the real estate agent who sold him the church, haranguing them into joining the congregation. In his stories, they say yes, and they usually cry. And it goes on to describe how you almost feel like the disdain dripping in this article. It goes on to describe that the pastor would do such terrible things as convincing the congregation to leave baked goods on people's doorsteps to invite them to Christmas services and encouraging them that if somebody, even if somebody says they don't want to come to church or they don't want to learn about Jesus, that they are to just continue and do it not, you know, the 73rd time maybe somebody will come and that they go on and then, you know, there's more bad stuff. And it's, it's a, at first I was like, well, wait a minute. That's what we do, right? Like, or at least are supposed to do, right? Like, so I'm going like, okay, so, so wait. So leaving the baked goods on people's doorsteps and inviting them to church is bad? And in the mind of the writer, yes. It's manipulative. It's sneaky. Or him, I love the word recruitment. The pastor focused heavily on recruitment. And I thought, wait, is he talking about evangelism? Is he like... Yes, he's talking about evangelism and haranguing strangers such as a sad young waitress into coming to church. And I thought, well, we would hope so. I mean, like if somebody in my church saw a sad young waitress without hope and then said, you know what? I know I don't know you, but, but, but have you ever looked at Jesus? Have you ever seen what Jesus, man, let me share, you, share with you what Jesus has done in my life. And, and, and we would just say, yeah, that's what we do as Christians. And the writer, you can tell the writer is just saying, that's just another of the evil, manipulative, abusive, uh, imposing your beliefs on others kind of stuff this pastor was doing. Here's a terrifying statistic to me as a millennial I'm a geriatric millennial, though, so I'm like the <laughs> oldest of them, and I look down on the other millennials. And so this is, a, this is a real statistic out in the field right now. One-third of millennial Christians would say, according to this survey, that it is wrong to share your faith with somebody who has a different faith in the hopes that they will come to share yours. And so, like, once I... I was like, wait... One third, and the author noted the stats didn't have enough data, but the stats are higher for Gen Z. We see you, Gen Z. We love you. But you see what's happened. The cultural shift is this, that you should never impose your beliefs on someone else. Where we as Christians would say, man, I would love to tell you about this guy, Jesus, and how he's changed my life. And what's happened is as the culture's moved, so have Christians. This is what we have to be careful of. Um, In this day, in this place, this group of 70 people, they represent the cultural, political, religious consensus of the Jewish people. 
and they are all opposed to Jesus. And so what we cannot be surprised by as Christians is that we will, if we are rightly living for Christ, face at certain points concerted opposition, and we cannot then retreat to, well, what does everyone around me think? What does my culture think? And, and this is, I'm just saying, this is dangerous on all sides, okay? Imagine you got two people. Imagine you got somebody who's raised in Biloxi, Mississippi, and somebody else who's raised in San Francisco, California. And the two of them will be raised in radically different cultures, and they will, as a result of that culture, believe things about marriage, about gender, about race, about history, about God, about, you know, and, and for each of them, they will take on, they will be raised in environments that, that, that the, the culture that they live in, the Bible would critique and call them out of. Different aspects of each of their worldviews, right? It's not, you could say, well, everybody born in Biloxi, that culture is perfect and everything, you should just agree with everything they say. Nor do we say the same thing in San Francisco. That is, here's what I'm trying to say, Christians. We must expect to swim against, not with the cultural current. It should feel hard to be a faithful Christian in a culture that does not claim the name of Christ or acknowledge him. It should feel like swimming upstream. That's the, the, the weight of biblical example here. So is part of the ground of your faith, well, people around me agree with me? No, no, no. What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? That's one sinking sand ground. Second ground of sinking sand. I got to move faster here. Uh, earthly justice is sinking sand. I'm gonna, this is not going to be a long point, but I just want to point this out. The hope of earthly justice to say that, okay, life is going to be fair and everyone is going to treat me fairly as a Christian. We cannot assume that either. That, that can be and often will be swept away. Look at the, how Mark records how this trial was so unjust. They sought testimony against Jesus in verse 54, but they found none. In verse 55, the testimony they did go out and get and, and, and convince people to give did not agree. Verse 59, the testimony still did not agree. And that's on top of the fact that this whole trial is a miscarriage of justice, even according to the very regulations and laws these people held themselves. For example, the trial was held at night. It was not supposed to be held at night so that others could see and bring testimony as needed. They didn't want anyone to know. In fact, they so didn't want anyone to know, they didn't even hold it in the right place. They held it in some other secret location, right? Why? Because they didn't want anyone coming with stories about how Jesus healed them or helped them. No, they're controlling all of this. There should have also been clear evidence of blasphemy, and there was not. That's one of the only ways to get a charge of death. And the, the, the punishment that they will later argue for, crucifixion, is not one of the biblical punishments that they should be handing out, even for the crime, had it been true. Meaning there's just miscarriages of justice everywhere. And here's the point. The point is that hoping that life will be fair in an earthly sense as a Christian is sinking sand. Life will not always be fair. We cannot, as Christians, be like, well, I'm going I'm to be nice. I'm going to be a Christian. And then as a result, everybody around me, everything around me in life should be fair. It wasn't fair for Jesus. Peter and Mark are preparing their readers. It's not going to be fair for you. This is written during or after the reign of Nero, who burned Christians like torches. He's preparing them. This is the way they treated 
Jesus. This is the way they will treat you. I remember talking to a friend one time who really was convinced and convicted by God. He needed to be more openly Christian in a work environment where there's a lot of adultery and a lot of, you know, flirtation and a lot of cutting corners, a lot of lying. And so he was like, you know what, I, I need to, I'm not, not going to be a jerk, but I'm going to let people know, hey, I, I can't do that because I'm a Christian, you know, and the, this is what God's called me to do. And, uh, and, and, and he expected I don't know what he expected. I think he expected he was going to say that, and then beams of light would come, and then everyone would be like, oh, uh, tell us this day how we must be saved, sir. Instead, what happened is everybody was like, that guy's the worst. He won't participate in flirtation and adultery stuff. He won't let us lie. He doesn't lie himself. He's making us do the work we're supposed to do. Nobody likes this dude. And he's like, what in the world? Christians, there will be moments like that. Be prepared. That is sinking sand. Uh, Okay, let's move on. Number three, this is probably the main application of this section. Self-confidence is sinking sand. Self-confidence is sinking sand. We, We see the example of three different groups that seem so committed to Jesus, but then scatter. First, in verse 50, they all left him and fled. These people who followed Jesus. Some of these people are probably the people shouting Hosanna. Some of these people are probably the people saying, this is the king, this is the king of Israel, and yet they all flee. Then you find Mark in verses 51 to 52. Man, he is so committed to go after Jesus, to follow him. He's wearing, I'm basically, I don't know, I don't know what circumstances led to this, but he's wearing like one layer of clothing, and decides, you know what, it doesn't matter. It'd be like, you know, you're in your pajamas and something goes down and you're like, I don't care, I'm jumping in the car. I'm, go- you know, and you're, I'm running in my pajamas. Right? This is, Mark is committed until they seized him. He, see, he faces the opposition and all of a sudden he's like, yeah, I'm gonna go after you. Nope, nope. And he's, you know, they're grabbing his pajamas. He's running away naked. Like this is, this is uh, not flattering for Mark the author of the gospel. And then third, you, you see Peter. Peter, the blustery disciple. He says, verse 29, 14, verse 29, look at that. Chapter 14, verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. You see Peter's estimation of himself? He's like, listen, I don't know about these jokers, the other disciples, but I got your back, Jesus. I am with you, right? He's ready to roll. And his first denial occurs when Mark is careful to record, Peter probably careful to record, that a servant girl says, you also were with the Nazarene, right? I mean, this is not a big intimidated guy. This isn't even the guys that grabbed Mark and were, you're trying to seize him. This is just a girl, With like a jar she's carrying. It's like, hey, weren't you one of those? You know? And faced with the opposition of a little girl, Peter cracks. And here's what's tragic and sad about this. The Lord gave him, in a sense, two more chances. And and instead of his resolve strengthening and saying, you know what? No, I am with him. His third denial occurs with two brutally grievous elements. The first is that he denies knowing Jesus. They were just asking, weren't you with him? Weren't you one of them? 
He could have just said, I'm not one of them. Instead, he goes so far as to say he does not know Jesus at all. The man who he's been with for three years. Very personally, the man who healed his mother-in-law at the doorstep of death. The man he has seen heal hundreds, thousands of people whose words carry the weight and authority of Scripture. And he says, I don't know him. And then second, he invokes a curse he so strongly denies it in the strongest possible terms that there's some disagreement. I'm like, okay, what does it mean he's invoked a curse? Now, well, remember Peter is a sailor, okay? And he may or may not know some salty language at this point. You know, I don't know. What I do know is this. In the strongest possible terms, Peter is denying ever knowing his Lord and Savior, the one that he was the first to confess, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. He says, I don't know him. What's the point? The point is self-confidence is sinking sand. We as Christians cannot make the ground of our faith do more, try harder, suck it up, grit it out. And here's where I think we as Christians especially need to be careful with this believe in yourself stuff, okay? It's not wrong to be like, you know, you have a big presentation. Man, I can do this. I'm prepared. Let's go. But there is, there is a sort of an undercurrent in American culture of unbiblical self-confidence that, and, and that, that then begins to infect our faith and become the ground of our faith. And it's like, okay, I follow Jesus because I can gut it out. I can grit it out. Listen, many times in my life um, that, that I have thought, you know what? I've got this. I will beat this. Here's a sin. I need to get after it. I will do it. And my confidence is in myself. And I'm like Peter saying, listen, they all might fall away, but I will die with you. Why is this in our Bibles? Why does Mark put the, his one occurrence is the least flattering story of his entire life goes in this book. And Peter, the apostle, probably ministering in Rome at this time, the, if you could say it this way, the senior pastor of the church in Rome puts his darkest moment in the first gospel. Why do they do that? I think one of the things they are saying is do not make your self-confidence the grounds of your Christian walk. Do not say, man, this, this is what I'm trusting in myself. Hudson Taylor says this. This just wrecked me when I read it this week. Hudson Taylor says, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses him. Peter and Mark needed to get here. They needed to have the self-confidence that they were standing on utterly ripped away from them so that they could embrace the second point. The second point is the encouragement. The encouragement is this. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. This is the good news. That if you remember my dad's story of the, the lake overflowing and rising and you're looking for where to go, there is a rock you can cling to in life. The, where the culture is not stable, your own self-confidence in yourself, you're not even stable. But there is one thing in life you can cling to that never moves and it is the rock Jesus Christ. 
We're going to see briefly uh, three ways that's true. First, it's this. Christ's character is our rock. Look at what Jesus does in this scenario. He does not buckle under pressure like Peter. He does not devolve into self-pity. He does not revert to pride. He is being grievously sinned against. He is being slandered. He is being beaten. He is being spit on. And his response is no sin in return. I mean, look, man, I don't know about you, but when people start sinning against me, I'm like, all right, let's go, right? We had one one time that, uh, I think I can share this because they're not part of the church anymore. Uh, We were doing evangelism in the neighborhood, and one of the neighbors did not respond kindly to it, to to their, you know, uh, efforts to be like, hey, we're from the church. And so the guy, I think, memorably said, listen, bro. And the guy began using some choice language and really, you know, getting in their face. And so one of our, uh, our folks said, listen, man, I can unzip this Christian suit and come outside and have a conversation with you if you want. Right? That is what happens. We start getting sinned against. We're like, okay. It starts coming out. Here's what comes out of Jesus. No sin. Here's what comes out of Jesus. Faithfulness. Here's what comes out of Jesus. Righteousness even in the face of being grievously sinned against. Peter would later reflect on this in 1 Peter 2.23 and write this. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christian, this is the rock we can cling to, is that Jesus, the one we follow, the one we trust, We do not have to worry at some point if he will devolve into sinful anger. We don't have to worry whether his promises will be kept. We don't have to worry whether at some point he will fail. We don't have to worry whether at some point late in life he will blow it. This is the truth. His character is steadfast. His righteousness is spotless. He is completely trustworthy and worthy of us clinging to him with everything we have with everything we have. Second, Christ as substitutionary savior is our rock. I believe that one of the things that Mark does in his gospels is he teaches theology through the arrangement of his narratives. And here's what I mean by that. It is intentional, as Kent Hughes is saying, that you have the failure of Peter and the faithfulness of Jesus placed side by side. Almost two portraits Because Mark means for us to see what Peter teaches in his letters. Peter, the apostle, writes this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, and listen to this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Here's what this means. I printed this out. This is Peter's actions. Peter was below in the courtyard, and seeing Peter warming himself, the servant girl looked at him and said, you also were with him. And it says, but he denied it, verse 70. But again, he denied it, verse 71. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And this is Jesus. Again and again, faithful, faithful, faithful. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am. Faithless, 
faithful. This is what Peter says happens. The faithfulness of Christ is placed over our unfaithfulness. The righteousness of Christ is placed over our unrighteousness. And this then is what the Father sees when he looks at the Christian. Like I, I've, I felt the Lord ministering to people even before the message today in the area, in this particular area, that maybe for you there is a failure. There is a thing, a chapter that defines you and your life. And, and when you look at your life, that's all you see. And when you think about the way God sees you, it's almost like that standing out like a blinking, flashing thing. It's like, here's this person's life. Boop, this is their failure right here. This was Peter's failure. But placed alongside it is the righteousness and faithfulness of Christ. And I do wonder if Peter, as he wrote the line, the righteous for the unrighteous thought of this moment, that he failed and failed and failed. And yet, there's this, actually, the text records that Jesus and Peter, as he denied him the third time, Jesus was brought across the courtyard and he looked in Peter in the eyes. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. This, friends, this, brothers and sisters, is our rock, the substitutionary Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the reality, brothers and sisters. We will buckle at times under outside pressure against us in our faith. We will sin when sinned against at times. We will be self-confident and proud and resolute and fail. But when we fail, we have a rock we can cling to. In the floods of life, no matter what is going on around us, we can hold fast to this truth that Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the good news of Mark chapter 14. So where do you go? Let me just ask you this briefly. Where do you go when this happens, when you fail? I think people often go to one of three places. When they fail as a Christian, they go to despair. It's just like, oh, I'm worthless, I'm hopeless. They go to... um, self-reliance, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to do more, I'm going to try harder. Or they go third to minimizing or hiding. Well, it's not that bad, you know. I may have said that to my wife, but it's not, it's not that, you know, people say that. I mean, it's just... And, and, and this passage saves us from all those. We don't have to despair. <laughs> he has given himself for us. We don't have to despair. And we certainly should not then go back after this and lean on self-reliance and say, I'm going to do it. No. And certainly we then don't have to hide our sin. I just felt as I was preparing this, there may be some folks that that feel like they have to hide their sin or minimize their sin because if if they bring it out, if they talk to their spouse about what's going on, if they talk to a brother or sister about what's going on, they will will feel the weight of how terrible they are and they're afraid of that. Here's the reality. Mark and Peter are sharing their anger absolute worst chapter in their life and pointing to Christ. And they're unashamed in sharing it because it points to Christ. Don't be afraid. 
Okay, last and briefly, Christ as divine judge is our rock. Here's what I love. Here's what I love about what Jesus does in this moment. Jesus is, is imagine him, the lone figure in semicircles of 70 scholars with their scholarly outfits and, and, and religious and political power. And Jesus, in a moment, in a phrase, turns the tables on them and says this. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. You think you are judging me, but there's only one judge in this room, and it's not you. Jesus is claiming he is the son of man in Daniel, that he is the son of God, that he is the ruler of the universe, that he is God himself and God incarnate, and he is the divine judge. And this utterly transforms what happens when we face the cultural floods and life challenges around us. Because when we think, oh man, everybody thinks X, everybody thinks this, right? Everybody, oh, well, I guess evangelism, we can't do that anymore because we're imposing our beliefs on people, you know, or I, I, there's another stat out there that, that many people believe Jesus was just a good, t- Christians, people who call themselves Christians aren't sure if Jesus is divine, but they are very sure he's a good teacher, Right? These are the stats that are out there about people who call themselves Christians. And the cultural flood, that's where things will push us. But if you remember one thing, it will help you to stand firm. And that is this, that there is only one judge and it is not Twitter. And it is not Facebook. And it is not America. It is not your workplace. It is not your extended family. It is not the movies and TV shows around us. It is Christ, the rock, God incarnate the one who comes with the clouds and sits at the right hand of God. He is the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. The only one. And what Mark and Peter are doing is they're showing this and they're saying, listen, after you read this gospel, Nero may burn you like a torch, but he's not the judge. Jesus is. Strengthen your faith, Christian. That's the effect of it. Listen, I, I struggled so much in my teen years with what people thought of me. I'll admit, I still do. I want people to like me. Like when I meet you after church, I hope you like me, right? Like, the, like I, I, and I have that. I very much in, in my teens was, was almost bound to that. I was afraid to almost do anything. I, I was afraid to even invite people to come hang out with me because they would reject me. So afraid, so afraid of what they thought of me. The only thing that helped me over time was this. What Jesus thinks about me is the only thing that ultimately matters. The only thing that ultimately matters. All right, so let's wrap this up. I want to encourage you. The, The contrast is instructive, and I think we should be asking two questions. One is this. What am I standing on that may be less stable than I thought? What am I standing on that is sinking sand? Maybe, maybe without realizing it, you, you kind of really do care what culture thinks about you. Or maybe you, 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 your confidence in your Christian life is yourself. You, you feel like, listen, and here's a test for whether your confidence is in yourself. It's often this. When you say things like Peter, they won't, but I will. It's when you start to contrast yourself. Those people over there, I'm better than them. You start constantly ranking people. They're here, I'm here. They're here, I'm here. Right, if you're doing that, probably the ground of your confidence is yourself. Look what happened to Peter. 
don't go there. Peter's saying, don't go there, right? Where's your confidence today? Second, ask the question, how do I make Christ my rock? How do I cling to Christ? And, and it's not, listen, I, basically every time we stand up here as pastors, we just encourage you to do the same stuff because it's the same stuff all over the Bible. And it's this, cling to Jesus, cling to him through the word, cling to him in prayer, cling to him. You just have, I mean, there's no, you're like, okay, well, but, but can I do something like, it's like a, like the Johnson to Johnson, can I just get the one shot instead of the two? Do I have to keep doing all the, you know, can I just get the one pill instead of the 10 that I have to keep? I don't want to take pills every day. I just want to do the one. No, this is the way it works in the Christian life. Bible, prayer, Jesus again and again. And here's the joy though. Here is the joy. None of us cling to the rock alone. Look around you. This room is filled with people who are here to cling to the rock of Jesus with you and get up close to them so that when your hand begins to slip, somebody's got you and they get your hand back on the rock. That is what church is. That's what we do. We just cling to Jesus in the Bible and prayer and through the gifts again and again and again. That's what we do. But it is glorious. But it is glorious that we have people to cling to the rock with us. All right, I mean, I gotta wrap this up. I'm, not, I'm gonna just wrap it up. No, I'm gonna read this. Can I read this? Can I read one more thing? Is that okay? Okay. Here, here's what I want you to remember, okay, as we wrap this up. This gospel written by kind of the Peter's the guy providing the content. Mark is the guy writing it down. Peter is almost assuredly the pastor, senior pastor or whatever of the church in Rome at the time. Mark very likely may be one of the elders of the church in Rome. And there were Christians that were so excited. Like, oh, you know, our two pastors are working on a book about Jesus and we're gonna get together and he's gonna read it out loud. And, you're, and what you know about your pastors is they get up there and they preach the Bible and Peter's up there preaching and you're like, man, this Galilean fisherman speaking to thousands. Oh, Peter, you know, this is the best. And you begin to read the gospel and instead it is not a, 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 a record of the heroic exploits of your pastors. And you're kind of rooting for them. Like, he's our guy. He's like our quarterback, right? Like, come on, Peter. Yeah, yeah. And every instance of Peter in the gospel of Mark, except for one, is right? Like, he gets Jesus right, that he's the son of God. And then even later is like, ah, I don't know who he is, right? And, and this is the pinnacle of his failure. And you're, you're sitting there in Rome thinking, that's our pastor? Like, our pastor denied Jesus three times, and he's going to get up and talk about Jesus now? Yes. Yes. What does it mean to be a Christian? That's one of the purposes of the Gospel of Mark. What does it mean to be a Christian? And Mark 14 reminds us this, or tells us this. Being a Christian does not mean that you never fail. Being a Christian means... That when you fail, you cling to the rock that is Christ. In a very real sense, Peter, the apostle, the pastor, the teacher is saying, don't trust me, trust him. Would you stand and let's, let's pray. Father, I pray as we close. Lord, that you would do two things to us. First, you'd help us see if there are any areas in our life where we have uh, 
trusted something other than you for our kind of sure foundation. That if we think, man, you know what? I, I, I really am standing on the ground of what people think about me, and I really don't want them to think poorly of me. Or standing on the ground of, man, I'm the best. I can do this. I can get through this Christian life. I can be a great husband and business leader and wife or whatever. Pray you'd help us see, man, where, where, where the ground we stand on is unstable. But then I pray that you lift our eyes as we sing. You transform our hearts as we sing. That, that we, in the middle of the flood of cultural currents going on around us, even the, in the, cult, the currents that we can't trust in our own hearts, that we would climb up on the rocks and cling to them for dear life. Climb up and cling to Christ the solid rock. I pray you do that work as we sing. Amen.